Well, apologies can be really hard, can't they? Apologies can be really hard. We're taught from the earliest ages by our parents how to apologize. And it can be really hard work. It can really be excruciating. Imagine this exchange. Mom comes up to you. Okay. Okay, it's time for you to apologize to your sister or your brother for what you did. Ah, oh, Mom, do I have to? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Did you mean that? No. <laughs> Say it like you mean it. <laughs> Fine. Sorry. Who's sorry? I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? <laughs> I'm sorry you got hurt. You mean you're sorry that you hurt them. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> it can be really painful, can't it? <laughs> Especially as we're growing up. It's hard to apologize as kids. I think a funny thing happens, though. I mean, the much easier thing to do as a kid is to forgive. Right? Your mom turns to the offended party and says, Okay, it's time for you to forgive your sibling. It's like, Okay, I forgive you. Let's go play. <laughs> Right? It's easy to do that. But a funny thing happens as we grow up and become adults, especially as Canadians, I think. See, we find saying sorry pretty easy as adults. We recognize when we're wrong or we're off base or we've done something that has hurt someone else, and so we apologize. It's pretty easy. But somewhere along the line, it becomes exact opposite as what we are in kids. It becomes very hard to forgive you ever thought of why that is? Where do we reverse that thinking? Where it becomes easy to apologize, but much harder to forgive someone for what they've done to us. Today we're going to be discussing this topic that can be really hard for many of you. It can be a very difficult topic. It can be hard to hear because you have been hurt by someone else. Sometimes very badly hurt. Maybe you've been hurt or abused physically, emotionally, or psychologically. I'm sure that there's some in this room that have been. So this can be very hard for you. It can be hard to hear because it deals how we respond to the way uh, what other people do. You weren't the one at fault. But how do you respond to that? It can be hard to hear because it may require you to do something that's very difficult in order to apply God's word into your life. It can be hard to hear because some of us have hardened our hearts in this area. We're not willing to let the Spirit work on us here. It's hard to hear. Well, we're in the middle of a sermon series on how we as Christians need to be connected in community together. Going through the one another's of the New Testament, so we've seen how to love one another and serve one another, bear with one another, uh, to spur one another on, and today we're going to be dealing with forgiving one another. So if you have your Bibles or if you got one on the way in, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be at the end, and let's pray though as we open up God's word and we look into this, 
that his spirit would guide us and teach us today and really work on our hearts, whether it's hard or soft, to hear what he has to say. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken uh, through your word to us. We pray that we would be open to it today. Uh, we pray that you would really do a work in each one of our hearts. It can be a, something that we don't like hearing, but we need to hear. We need to hear from you. So we pray that you would do that this morning in your name. Amen. So we're back in the book of Ephesians today. Last week, if you remember, we were at the beginning of chapter 4. This week, we're at the end. The main verse we'll be looking at today is verse 32, the very last one in the chapter. But we're going to spend some time on both sides of it so to get a good picture of what Paul's main message is here. And to get a picture of that, we have to start earlier. Um, we're going to start actually in verse 17. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. It says this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Stop there for a minute. So in these verses... Paul is telling the believers in Ephesus, don't live like the world around you, okay? They have hard hearts. They've been hardened. Don't live like that. They keep giving themselves to all kinds of lusts and impurities. Truth is in Jesus, and you've been taught according to this truth. And did you see what the truth was in verse 32 or 22? It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says we have an old self and a new self. Okay? An old life and a new life. And that we need to keep putting off our old self in order to put on our new self. And... This self was created to be holy and righteous. So how do we do this? How do we put on this or display this new life? Well, the next eight verses, Paul launches into at least, like, or I think it's eight verses, somewhere around there. <laughs> he launches into these commands of how we put on or take off the old self and put on the new self. It includes at least 15 different commands, and we're particularly interested in the last one. But to get there... Let's read these verses together from verse 24. So put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building, up, building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. 
And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Did you see the one another in this passage? Technically, there's two of them. There's two of them in verse 32. The ESV actually highlights them. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, the big idea of this passage how we, is how we display or put on our new self. One of the ways we do this is something we do to one another. I put it this way. It says one way that we put on our new life is by forgiving one another. When we forgive one another, we display our new lives in Christ. And a way that we put on our new self is through kindly forgiving one another. Did you see the connection between these verses? Verse 22 and 24 where it says, put off your old self, put on your new self. And then it says, therefore... And then we see all these commands, and one of these things, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Told to take off our old self, put on our new self, like we take off, really, like we take off and put on clothes. That's the picture that Paul is using here. You know that guys and girls are decidedly different on how they decide on what to wear? It's true. You know that what girls do? They do the eye test. They look at the clothes and they evaluate it. Does it look clean? Does it match what else I'm going to be wearing? Do I like how it looks? Does it go with my hair? All of these things. They, they consider other things as well, but they really focus on the way it looks. Okay? Guys don't care one bit about that. Guys... And see, we've been told all our life that we smell. <laughs> and generally, that's true. And so, we don't really care how it looks or if it matches. We do the sniff test. We pick up a piece of clothing. <sniffs> yeah, I can get another day out of that one. <laughs> right? That's what we do. And guys and girls will disagree and argue on whether that's the right way to go about this. <laughs> But spiritually, what we put on and take off matters. And Paul is telling us, we need to keep putting off our old clothes. You can't evaluate, you have to put on new clothes. Don't keep wearing the same old clothes. And one of the ways we do this is through forgiving one another. Now, we've already talked about how hard this forgiveness can be for us. People hurt us, they abuse us, they disgust us offend us, anger us, antagonize us, and more. It's not easy to forgive people for what they do to us. I want to recognize that right off the bat. It's not easy. Our pride often gets in the way, and for some reason, we want to hold grudges. It's a very natural thing for us to do. And we end up becoming entrenched in our attitude towards someone else. Even when someone might come to you and apologize, humbling themselves to apologize, we find it difficult 
to let them go, to forgive them. We don't like it. And what makes forgiveness harder is if the person keeps doing the same thing over and over and over. You might say, Pastor Matt, I have forgiven someone of what they did to me, but they keep doing it over and over again. Do I have to keep forgiving them? It's funny. Someone asked that exact question of Jesus. Do you remember? Back in Matthew chapter 18, Peter asked Jesus, How many times shall I forgive someone when they sin against me? Up to seven times? I mean, Peter imagined, okay, that's God's number. I'm going to guess that. I'm going to have to forgive them seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. So do the math in your head. 70 times seven, 490. So if someone sins against you 491 times, you don't have to forgive them. No, that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is to exaggerate to the point to say, never stop forgiving. Never stop. People will sin again and again, but never stop. Imagine, here's a funny example. Imagine if a wife keeps telling her husband, don't leave Kleenex in your pants pocket. Because it gets all over the laundry when I do. And the husband apologizes, recognizes, okay, Yeah, I did that. I'm sorry, honey. It won't happen again. But the next week, his wife pulls out the laundry, and there's Kleenex everywhere. And so she confronts her husband, and he somberly apologizes again. Okay, I'm sorry. I forgot. I won't do it again. And so she forgives him, and the next week, it happens again, and again, and again. He apologizes. She forgives him, but... He just can't seem to remember to check his pockets. Does he have to keep forgiving him? Jesus says yes. And this isn't something very serious. But I bet she won't have to do it 490 times before he gets the picture. Now this would be something that's very trivial in our lives. It doesn't really matter about Kleenex in a pocket. But what about something serious? Like abuse, or rage, slander. What happens then? Are we willing to forgive again and again? Now you might object and say, you've said it's hard, but you're asking me to do something that is too hard. I just can't do that. I can't. Forgive. You don't understand what this person has done to me. And sure, I probably don't. I don't fully understand how someone has wronged you. And I'll be very clear. I am by no means excusing what someone else has done. No way. But Jesus tells us to forgive. And he understands what's happened to you. He knows. He's seen it. And he tells us to forgive anyway. In this passage in Ephesians, I think Paul tells us a few things about forgiveness, why it's so important, why we need to forgive one another, and how we can practically forgive others. 
even for the biggest things, for the biggest problems. I'm going to show you a few things that I think we learn in this passage. And the first thing that we learn about forgiveness is that forgiving one another keeps the Holy Spirit from being grieved. When we forgive one another, we keep, we basically, we keep the Holy Spirit happy. Forgiving one another keeps the Holy Spirit from being grieved. I get this picture back in verse 30 to 32. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And then, he tells us how. How don't we grieve the Holy Spirit? By getting rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, and by being kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. I find it interesting that Paul tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. He could have said what I would imagine that the Holy Spirit does when we do wrong things. He'd say, don't anger the Holy Spirit. Or don't frustrate the Holy Spirit. Don't keep disobeying the Holy Spirit. No, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. That means that what we do actually can make the Holy Spirit sorrowful or sad. Do you know that? That when we sin or we refuse to forgive someone, it makes God grieve? This is the same Holy Spirit that is so good to us. He guides us, teaches us, molds us, helps us, comforts us. This verse here says he has sealed us for the day of redemption. That means the Holy Spirit is the one that keeps us secure in our salvation. He's sealed us like someone sealing an envelope that isn't to be opened until the day Jesus returns. So he does all this for us, and then we grieve him. Grieve him. Withholding when we sin. Withholding forgiveness really is a sin. On the other hand, when we choose to forgive, the Holy Spirit is not grieved. I'd imagine that he rejoices. Another child of God is showing mercy. Showing love, forgiving. Parents, do your children ever grieve you? Of course. Of course they do. There are decisions they make or things they do or words they say that grieve your heart. That doesn't mean you don't love them. That doesn't mean you don't care for them or protect them. You're just deeply saddened by them. I think that if we kids knew how much we can grieve our parents, it would totally change the way we live. It really would. But here we get that picture of our Heavenly Father is grieved when we don't forgive one another. We don't forgive another. That knowledge alone, I think, should motivate us to make sure that we forgive one another. But I know that sometimes that isn't enough. See, when someone hurts us, our emotions automatically get going, full steam. It's like those emotions just dominate our thoughts. How could he? How dare they? I'll get them back. Many other emotions will go through our head, run through them. The last thing on our minds is how our attitude makes God feel. 
The need to forgive one another doesn't even enter our thoughts. And that makes some sense. See, the next thing we learn in this about forgiveness is that forgiving one another stands in opposition to our old life. When we forgive one another, it goes against our old life. And forgiving one another stands in opposition to it. See, in verse 31, Paul lists the things that we need to get rid of. And these are all remnants of our old self. Read with me in 31. It says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. If forgiveness is part of putting on our new life, then it makes sense that the opposite is part of our old life. And here, Paul's like, get rid of these things. They're from your old life. Instead, be kind, compassionate, forgiving. He's really drawing a contrast. See, for our old self, forgiveness is impossible. Forgiveness is really impossible. It is absolutely counterintuitive to everything on our natural minds. One of the most unnatural things we can do as humans is forgive. It's the opposite of what we want to do. If someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back. Or we want to be stay hurt. It's not natural to forgive. And if you look at the things that Paul says to get rid of in verse 31, I think that they really are the exact opposite of what you see in verse 32. In fact, I would guess that if there is someone in your life that you haven't forgiven, one of these things in verse 31 is probably the reason why. Read with me in 31. It says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. You might say, But this person hurt me too badly. I can't forgive them. And Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness. I'm still angry over what they've done to me. Give me a couple years and I might get over it. Get rid of all anger. You know what they did to me? Let me tell you what they did to me. He says, get rid of all slander. I can't forgive them. In fact, all I can think about is getting them back. He says, get rid of every form of malice. Malice is a desire to inflict harm on someone else. I could go on, but I think you get the point. Our objections to forgiveness are all part of our old self. So how do we fight this? How do we fight our old self? And how do we take that off and put on forgiveness, or be willing, even, to forgive one another? I believe Paul gives us an answer here. He says we need a couple things as we forgive. And I put it this way, that forgiving one another requires a kind and tender heart. To forgive one another, we need to be kind and compassionate, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another requires this. Read with me in verse 32. It says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What leads to forgiveness here? Kindness and compassion. They're intrinsically tied to each other. If you're not kind or compassionate, you're going to have a hard time forgiving. And when you forgive, you really display that kindness and compassion the Lord wants us to have. You remember what old movie stores used to put on their videotapes? Little saying, they stuck it on all of them. Four words, be kind 
or three words, sorry, be kind, rewind. It's funny, I was thinking this week how fast VHS tapes and VCRs have gone extinct. Now we don't use them at all anymore. We watched a VHS tape a little while ago, and it was like, wait a second, we actually have to rewind and fast forward to get places? <laughs> What's with that? And uh, when you get to the end of the tape, you have to sit there for a few minutes while the VCR rewinds it. and You can't just skip the areas, and you can't just flip it and take it out. And, uh, but that's why they put it on there. And because after, if you didn't rewind it and someone else sticks it in their VCR, well, it's going to really frustrate them. Well, they can't start. They have to rewind everything first. And so kindness was thinking of the other person who's coming after you in this case. And that's really what kindness is. It's thinking of other people above yourself. Looking after them above you. And when our heart is kind, it's a lot easier to forgive. It really is. Because you're thinking of the other person above yourself. Put yourself in their shoes. Would I want to be forgiven? Well, yes, I would. Be kind that way. So we need to be kind and we need to be compassionate. The word compassionate here is actually better translated tenderhearted. Your version might say that. Um, I believe the NIV is the only one to use the word compassionate. Um, but being tender-hearted leads to a willingness to forgive. And to be tender-hearted, here's a definition for you, it means to easily be easily moved to love, pity, or sorrow. Tender-hearted. To be easily moved to love, pity, or sorrow. And so you see a need and your heart just cries out, I need to do something about it. That's being tenderhearted. Or the Holy Spirit convicts you of something. And your heart easily changes. It's being tenderhearted. Your heart, your attitude, your actions, they're moldable. They're tender. When God tells us here to have tender hearts, it's like he's telling us people are going to hurt you. They are. But are you going to be easily moved to forgive. Easily changed. Move to love them. Are you going to be easily convicted by the Holy Spirit to forgive them? The opposite of being tender-hearted would be, of course, hard-hearted. Something that is often spoken of against in Scripture. In fact, the verses that we read earlier in this chapter, it talks about hard hearts. Back in verse 17. Paul says, the wicked have hardened heart. It says, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? The hardening of their hearts. And what comes after that, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as not to indulge in, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Proverbs 28.14 says that blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. A hard heart is unwilling to grow, unwilling to change, unwilling to love, to make sacrifices. And I would say this, the harder that you find it to forgive is probably a sign of how hard your heart is. 
the harder that you find it to forgive is a sign of the state of your heart. So let me ask you, is your heart tender? Or is it hard? This may be what is holding you back from forgiving someone, no matter what they've done. If your heart is hard towards forgiveness, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to change you, to change your heart, mold it into His likeness, to make your heart tender again so you're easily moved from our natural state to love. As we've gone along here, there's probably a question that many of you are asking. And that's just, what's the big deal? Why is this so important to God? Why would he ask us to do something that's so difficult? That's so against our natural instincts? Well, we've seen an answer in this, and the final thing we learn about forgiveness here. And that is that forgiving one another imitates God's love. When we forgive one another, we follow God's example of forgiveness and love. And forgiving one another really does imitate God's love. Up till now, I've kind of ignored the end of verse 32. But let's read this again and into chapter 5, starting in verse 32. It says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And go into chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The number one motivation for us to forgive, the number one reason why forgiveness is important to God, is because we have been forgiven. We have been forgiven by God through Christ. Verse 32, it says, Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Without God cannot have forgiven our sins without what he did through Christ. By sending Christ. As we've gone through this series on being connected in community, we've seen this repeatedly. That God wants us to do things for one another, to one another, with one another, but only things that he's already done for us. So, love one another like I have loved you. Serve one another like I have served you. Forgive one another, even as God in Christ Forgave you. The ver- verse 1 in chapter 5 says, Therefore, so because Christ forgave, be imitators of God in showing love. But be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We imitate God when we forgive. As his dearly loved children. Have you ever seen a little kid they, who imitates their, something that their parents do. It's pretty natural. Kids do that all the time. There's an old home video that's lying around their house somewhere that I'm sure my dad wouldn't like uh, getting out, but uh, of him underneath our kitchen sink on his back fixing some plumbing. And uh, I was probably about two at the time, 
didn't know anything of what I was doing, but you know where I am? I'm imitating everything he's doing, lying on my back right next to him, trying to help some way, <laughs> trying to fix the drain or whatever he was doing with random tools that have no business being under the kitchen sink. <laughs> but kids do that. They naturally imitate what their parent, what they see their parents do. And Paul says here to be imitators of God as his children. We're his children, and so we're to imitate him. We see him loving and forgiving. And so we're to imitate that, to love and forgive. There's quite a contrast in Scripture between what we were and what we are now. We were God's enemies. And we've been brought into the family of God as his children through Christ. One preacher says this, and this is an interesting quote. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It says, You have been told that God is a loving, gracious, merciful, kind, compassionate, wonderful, and good sky fairy who runs a daycare in the sky and has a bucket of suckers for everyone because we're all good people. That is a lie. God looks down and says, I hate you, you are my enemy, and I will crush you. And we say, well, that's deserved, right, and just. And then God says, because of Jesus, I will love you, and I will forgive you. This is a miracle. Now, don't misunderstand that quote. God is loving, and he is gracious, he is merciful, he is kind, and so on. But he loves us not because we're good people. We're not. He loves us because he chose to love us and forgive us because of what Christ did. And he only forgives us through Christ. If you're here and you're not quite sure of all this Jesus stuff, and what has Jesus done for us? Let me tell you, I'm not going to mince words. You have sinned against God and deserve hell. That's the truth. We all have sinned against God and deserve hell. But God chose to love us. He chose to forgive us, and he did this by sending his only son to earth to become like us, to live a perfect life, and then to die for us. He took what we deserve on himself, paid our punishment on the cross, died for our sins so that he could offer us forgiveness of our sins. It's up to us to either reject that or accept it. Accept that forgiveness. He offers it to you today. Please come talk to me after the service. If this is new to you or if this is confusing, or if you want to know more, come talk to me. I don't bite. I'm not scary. Come talk to me. This is very important. See, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the greatest act of forgiveness in the history of the world. And that's because an infinite crime was forgiven. Crimes that we commit against him.
An infinite crime is forgiven. See, all these things that people have done to us, no matter how terrible they are, and they are terrible, they're finite. They're against fellow sinners. They're not against the holy God. But our sins against God were infinite. And in view of the cross, we find infinite mercy and forgiveness. We need to be willing to forgive others for whatever they've done in view of the cross. What Jesus went through for us. All those terrible things that happened to us, Christ experienced worse. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was crushed. And he bled and died for you and for me. And we can't wait for when we need to forgive someone. We can't wait for the person who hurt us to come and apologize. Sometimes forgiveness has to come first. And that's what Christ did. He didn't wait for us to come and repent of our sin. He went first, offered us forgiveness. Sometimes we have to do the same. And you might say, well, what if, someone, what if they don't even want to be forgiven? Or what if they don't think that they were in the wrong? It doesn't matter. Forgive them in your heart. For, and if they do ever come and apologize... Be ready and willing to forgive them. As hard as that is. It is a supernatural thing. You can't do this on your own. When you say that's impossible, I understand it is. But through Christ, the miraculous can happen. The impossible can happen. And we can forgive. So is there someone in your life that you haven't forgiven for something they did to you? Maybe it's your husband and wife just acted completely irrationally to something you said and lashed out at you in anger. Maybe you've been bitter against your parents for many years. Maybe over abuse, whether physical or verbal or whatever. Maybe your parents walked out on you when you were young. Maybe your spouse walked. Maybe someone just really disrespected you, dressed you down in front of others, humiliated you, and naturally your feelings were very hurt. Maybe you were counting on a friend being there for you. They didn't show. Maybe they're just fair-weather friends. And that hurt. Maybe someone spread some slander or gossip untruth, rumors about you. Maybe you ruined your good name. Whether they were true or not. Maybe you shared a secret with someone in confidence and they didn't keep that secret. Maybe you lent money to someone and they never paid you back. Maybe it's something worse than any of these that I mentioned. 
Whatever the case, we are called to forgive in light of Christ forgiving us. If there's someone this week you need to go to and forgive of what they've done to you. There's a common story told in churches. I'm sure many of you have heard this story before. Um, I've heard it several times in churches and sermons, but it's powerful every time I hear it. No matter what you've gone through, I doubt you've gone through as much as an old lady, she's dead now, but back in the 40s, named Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, you may have seen the movie or read the book The Hiding Place. This is the story of her. And she was a single woman, a Dutch woman, living in, the, in her 50s, in the 1940s, living at home with her family. And during the Nazi occupation, they hid Jews in their home. And they were caught, they were imprisoned in concentration camps, and just brutal treatment. For almost a year, they lived under the harsh and torturous treatment of Nazis. And we hear about today just horrific stories of what took place. And Corey watched as her father died within 10 days of being in the prison. And before the year was out, her sister died under the treatment of these people. She was, Corey herself was accidentally released the week before all the women in her camp her age were executed. And how'd she respond? She spent the next 30 years traveling the world talking about God's love. Talk about something that must have been hard to do. One time after a talk in Germany, she saw one of her former Nazi concentration camp guards, one of the ones who was responsible for her sister's death. And in her book, The Hiding Place, she says this. She tells the story. It says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy, her sister's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendal the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness, any more than on our goodness, that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. That he gives along with the command, the love itself. That's so true. When he tells us to forgive, 
again and again, those who have sinned against us, it's his love that enables us to do it. We can't do it on our own. And it's his love and forgiveness that shine through. Not our own. We're going to close the service today around the Lord's table. Remembering the cross that provides our forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says that whenever we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At this time, I'll invite those who are going to be helping serve up. For all of us, though, I need to encourage you, however, to examine yourselves as we take this. Examine your hearts. Scripture also says that, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. If the Holy Spirit today has convicted you of something in your heart, you need to get right with before, before God before you take communion. Confess your sins before him and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Some of you might not be able to do this today, even if you're a believer. And if this is the case, you need to just pass it by. Because you would be drinking judgment upon yourself. And church, don't judge anyone if you see them pass the cup by or the bread by. It's a mature thing they're doing. Something I was saying, no, I need to get right with God first. Or I need to get right with this other person first before I come to the Lord's table. It's a good thing. If you haven't come to the place of recognizing Jesus as your Savior yet, we just ask you as well to pass the plate by. We won't judge you for doing so at all. But take this time to really consider the sacrifice that Christ made for you, for all of us.